You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. It's Mining Stock Education, and I'm your host, Bill Powers, joined with my friend Brian Lenny over at JuniorStockReview.com. It's time to check in with the resource speculator master, Rick Rule. Try to pick his brain about some of the deals that have occurred, failed mine developments, M&A. Uh, as Rick has taught us, the money is made in the micro when it comes to junior resource investing. Yes, you need to pay attention to the macro uh, tailwinds and headwinds and things like this, but it's it's that nitty gritty knowledge that we hope to draw out of Rick in this interview and other interviews that we've done with him that I think can truly be uh, transformative and equip you to further be successful in your junior resource investing and speculation. So Rick, thanks for coming back on the show. Brian, thank you for joining me and I'll kick it over to you, Brian, for the first question. Thanks, Bill. Um, so my first question revolves around jurisdictional risk. Um, it looks as though environmental permitting is becoming a bigger risk worldwide. Late last year, we saw delays with Marathon's EA for their Valentine Lake project in Newfoundland. Uh, more recently, we've seen a debacle with Rio2's Phoenix project in Chile. Um, it's a weak market, but I think you know both Marathon and Rio2's share prices have suffered. Uh, more than they otherwise would have if they hadn't had these problems. Uh, so the question is, in your view, is this a trend we'll see continue worldwide or are these isolated incidents? No, I, I think this gets worse. Uh, and I uh, thank you for asking the question. Um, one of the things that makes people less efficient speculators in resources than they otherwise would be is what I generally call xenophobia. Uh, which is to say that people are more afraid of risks uh, that are less familiar to them than they are risks that are more familiar with them. Uh, I, uh, of course, cut my teeth in the People's Republic of California, uh, which is alleged to be a Western jurisdiction with the rule of law. I say alleged because it's not. Um, and the worst experience of political risk that I ever experienced personally was the Castle Mountain permitting uh process which took if my memory serves me well 13 years uh imagine uh, a project where the cash flow is delayed by 13 years uh imagine uh first of all a project that should have been financed when gold was at $600 being finally financed when gold was at $300 and imagine cash flow delayed by 13 years at a 10% discount uh, what I mean to say there is that with regards to my California experience, uh, the process, if you will, stole the sunny side of $700 million from investors in a jurisdiction that most investors believe to be worthless. Uh, uh, pardon me, riskless. Uh, I, worthless was a Freudian slip. Uh, the point of this is that many investors who look like us, and I can afford to say this now, I'm old and retired, uh, believe uh, that uh, riskless jurisdictions uh, are Caucasian, uh, English-speaking, and have an established court system. Uh, the truth is, when money is stolen from you in English by the legislature, which is what Chile is trying to do right now, <laughs> it's just as gone. Uh, and this process is, I think, going to become more difficult before it becomes less difficult. Just understand that when you're assessing political risk, it, it can occur with equal alacrity in Congo, California, 
British Columbia, <laughs> New South Wales, don't assume because a project is in Canada or the United States, as an example, that it's riskless. Uh, don't assume, too, that some frontier and emerging markets jurisdictions, uh, Namibia comes to mind, uh, aren't more mining friendly uh, than places that you could more easily spell and pronounce. Rick, I had a, when I was thinking about this interview, you started off as a very ambitious young man and you had a business in this sector that you were developing. Can you talk about the transition between from looking for deals to where deals began to look for you? And then it became almost a full-time job, just screening deals. And has that been all of your career since that point and at that tra transition there? That's an interesting question, Bill. Interesting to me, because it happened to me. Uh, I don't know how relevant it's going to be to your audience. I was extremely lucky in my mid-20s and early 30s to become, as a consequence of my energy and ambition, uh, very useful to uh, people who were successful in the natural resources business. So I attracted the sponsorship of the Adolf Lundins and the Robert Friedlands uh, and the Bob Hunters. Uh, and the consequence of that is uh, probably through hard work and certainly through delivering value to people, I was able to uh, become affiliated with people who were very, very, very successful. Uh, and that meant that I had the ability to invest in deals uh, and offer deals to clients or friends that had a higher probability of success than would otherwise be the case. So you could say that I borrowed credibility and borrowed success uh, by being very picky uh, about who I dealt dealt with and did business with in my 20s. The consequence of that is that after seven or eight years, my reputation was good enough that deals were trying to find me. Uh, in retrospect, had I uh, rather than trying to expand my contact circle on the deal side, confined my uh, willingness to participate to sort of the 10 most important groups that I had done business with up till age 35. In other words, I excluded everybody afterwards. I probably would have worked half as hard and made twice as much money. <laughs> uh, because I've found that while I've done business with an awful lot of people uh, over 50 years, the people that I did business with my first 10 years were the ones that statistically made me all my money. Uh, and more importantly, uh, after you've done business, a lot of business with, say, a Ned Goodman, uh, you know, whose handshake was as good as, as a contract uh, or Adolf Lundin, uh, people like that, uh, it saves you an awful lot of origination aggravation. You don't have to do so much background work because you've done background work on them. You know, you have you have installed capacity, if you will. The, the second thing is that after you've done business with somebody for a long period of time where you rely on them and they rely on you, if there's a dispute, you solve it over dinner, not in court. Uh, and that probably saves, you know, two years of aggravation. So it's an interesting question. I, I focused really slavishly as a young man 
uh, on finding established people who had good reputations, but were too busy to do the stuff that I was willing to do in my 20s and 30s, which is to say, get on planes, uh, you know, work with investment banks, work with banks, uh, work with investors, do all sort of stuff. I, uh, they contributed the brains and the reputation, and I contributed the legs. <laughs> and that worked out very, very, very well for me. Uh, and probably had I confined myself to those reputations, pardon me, to those um, uh, relationships that I'd established by age 35, I probably would have done better than I've done. So if you had the internet and podcasts and YouTube channels such as mine, would your job have been easier or harder? Would it have created more competition for you? No, it would have been way, way, way easier. Uh, the stock brokerage part of my business uh, involved me traveling to endless live investment conferences around the world, doing general session speeches, doing breakout sessions and attracting investors to my way of thinking one at a time. Uh, <laughs> it involved literally thousands of presentations. Uh, had I systematized that business the way that I do it now through rural investment media, uh, I likely would have uh, eliminated 50 or 60% of the effort that was required in establishing a client network. And more importantly, I would have been able to systematize the communication with the client network. It's important if you build a client network, uh, in addition to attracting clients who are of like mind, that you, this is going to sound really horrible, but that you repel uh, potential clients whose way of thinking and yours are different enough that you can never de deliver value for them. Uh, and the wonderful thing for me about doing all the interviews that I do is if anybody cares to ascertain the way I think, uh, it's very, very, very available. And if you look at the comments in social media, you'll see that there's some people who like me a lot and there's some people who despise me intensely. Uh, and the idea that all of that work can be done ahead of time, uh, and I don't have to mess with it very much, is extremely attractive. I think the Internet is a wonderful tool for all parties. And you still show up in the YouTube comments, too, Rick. I see you commenting on my video. You even take, take, take the time. Why would you engage in a conversation if you don't engage in a conversation? Mm -hmm. That's insane. The people who use the Internet as sort of a hit and run mechanism as opposed to <laughs> developing relationships are idiots. Yeah, and I get a kick out of some of your replies too to some of your uh, your critics too. I, I find it humorous in the in the comment section. <laughs> you you need to communicate with everybody. Yep. <laughs> Brian, next question. Sure. Uh, this week, in fact, yesterday we saw G Mining announce their financing package for the Tokens New Gold project in Brazil. Interesting, the package included a $250 million gold stream with Franco Nevada uh, on the future mine. The interesting part about this is that gold is the primary product of the mine. And in the past, in my experience, the market has viewed streams like this on the primary product negatively. Uh, in your view, is this move indicative of the market? Or are we purely looking at a savvy move by a good management team? Uh, this, refle this reflects the market that exists today. Uh, had G Mining uh, been able to construct the financing package a year ago when equity was cheaper, you wouldn't have seen a gold stream. Okay. The, the truth is, if you look at Franco Nevada uh, and you look at the share price 
relative to the net asset value. Franco Nevada's cost of capital is probably zero. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say that isn't justified given their extraordinary asset package and track record. But what it means is that Franco Nevada is able to offer up what is in effect equity, uh, project equity, at a lower cost of capital to G mining than other equity would be. Uh, While I think it's unfortunate, uh, I have a very high regard both for the asset uh, and for G mining's um, capabilities, the management teams. And I think that equity should have been cheaper for them, but they had to deal with the market they had. The other thing that a Franco Nevada stream brings is it brings an imprimatur. Uh, People look and say, wow, Franco Nevada gave them a couple hundred million bucks. This is real. Uh, In our business, uh, Franco Nevada is better than the good, the good house, better than the good housekeeping stamp of approval. And so um, I had Randy Smallwood on the show recently, and he said the same thing, similar thing. He said, if you see Wheaton invest in a project that lets you know that we put it through the ringer in terms of due diligence. So, so I have a question about Alexco and what I'll call the failure. If you bought Alexco shares a year ago, it was over three bucks and got bought out at whatever, 50 cents or something like that by Hecla. And then there was a stream on that deal with Wheaton, which also was bought out. So Wheaton was a winner. But was this stream restrictive, too restrictive on this project? Was the stream that caused the downfall of the company or was it management or market conditions? How would you assess this debacle? I need to disclaim that question by saying that I was a founding shareholder of Alexco. I haven't been a shareholder for a very long time, but I followed that whole saga. Uh, I, I think the problem at Alexco was that they never, through the course of history, uh, stated their mission to investors well enough. And when they had very cheap capital, they never explored thoroughly enough. Uh, So the consequence of that was that the asset base was always, while high grade, too small to matter. Um, That's an enormous silver camp, but all they ever had the ability to talk about was promise. And because of the fairly uh, small nature of the reserve and resource, it was difficult for them to put together uh, a production financing package that didn't include the stream. Clint Nauman knew that his constituency were silver speculators that wanted to eliminate, that wanted to reduce as much as possible the equity issuance so that they would have access to the optionality around the deposit at higher silver prices. But the consequence of that, the consequence that they financed when they had to, as opposed to finance when they could, meant that in order to meet uh, the company's timeline for projects, they had to take the stream. It's interesting when you look at the assignment of value uh, across uh, that capital stack, how much value is in the stream rather than the equity. <laughs> it, it, it tells you uh, an awful lot about the fact that the stream is a financial asset in a small asset is usually worth more than the equity. Mm. And did they pay themselves too much, in your opinion, Rick, management? I didn't pay attention. Uh, it, or surely, certainly, when uh, I was involved, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning of the company, when Nova Gold, when those people were involved, they didn't pay too much because there was adult supervision. Uh, after they strayed from the mission, the original mission was to find how big Kino Hill was. Uh, in other words, see how many high-grade vein sets they were, see what the structure was, and see whether that mineralizing event, uh, all those intr intruding veins, uh, produced a larger, lower-grade halo of silver. You know, the original mission was to make that thing 200 million ounces or 250 million ounces. The mission changed over time to putting the thing into production with as little dilution as possible, the sort of Australian model where you would use the free cash flow from a small mine to make a big mine. I've seen that work exactly three times in my career. And so when you had the mission drift from finding out what you had to trying to put it in production, I exited. And after I exited, I have no idea what happened to management expense. I paid no attention. I have enough on my plate uh, with the 60 sort of companies I'm long. <laughs> I didn't want to worry about the 2000 companies that I wasn't long. So on, on exiting your position, when there's the mission drift or the change of mission, did you get burned early in your career? Is that why you now implement that approach in your personal portfolio? Many times, uh, many, many, many times. But I was influenced by the writing of Warren Buffett, uh, which said there's always, there's always an excuse to buy something if you feel like buying. Uh, Buffett said that most investors should pretend that they're hog farmers. Uh, their capital base is the trough. Uh, and what, let's say that you're in the sector and you can afford $250,000 in the sector. Um, you assume that there's room at your trough that is in your portfolio for 10 companies. And the first thing that you have to do is limit the number of companies that you have in your portfolio to the numbers of hours per month that you're willing to spend understanding the companies. Uh, I, I tell people one hour per month, meaning read the filing statements, you know, look at the insider reports, all this kind of stuff. Buffett suggested that if you allocate yourself 10 companies to add a new company, you have to fire an existing company. And I found that that was very, very, very good discipline for me. Uh, I don't, I must say, include things like BHP and Rio and Exxon because I don't think that I have to have the level of granularity in those companies that I do smaller companies. But certainly in companies like Alexco, I have to think that I have the ability to understand those companies better than my competitors. Uh, and that means, as an example, that a company that's experiencing mission drift uh, or a company with selling general and administrative expenditures that exceed sort of 25% of project expenditures or companies that are involved in small mining projects, say less than a million ounces uh, by way of a target of gold, as an example, I just don't want to know about. I don't care about. I'm not trying to say that those aren't valid speculative targets for other people, but they don't fit in my portfolio. Rick, what do you think about the strategy that I've seen uh, junior resource companies employ when they have to finance, but the market conditions are so poor, they don't want to dilute. Then they have a friendly shareholder and that shareholder gives them a bridge loan, like say a 10% for 18 months or something like this. I believe Ross Beatty does this sometimes with some of his companies. Do you like this approach as a fellow shareholder, not the one giving the bridge loan? Uh, I've seen it and I've participated a lot of times. It depends on whether or not you trust the person. 
if Adolf Lundin or Lucas Lundin uh, or Ross Beatty is doing it, I'm fine with it. Uh, there are other people who are, in effect, predatory that understand that they're involved in a loan-to-own process that will loan some one of their own company's money at 10 or 12% with the understanding that the company won't be able to pay it back, uh, and they'll be able to convert it for equity. Uh, if, you know, if the capital that has seen its way into the company is, say, $50 million in equity, and at the time of the loan, the company has a $10 million market cap, uh, and the person loans the company a million dollars with the understanding, probably, that the market cap of the company will fall by half through the cycle, and they can convert that million dollars into 30 or 40% of the company, <laughs> uh, where they're coming in on top of shareholder capital allocations of $50 million over five years. That's problematic. Uh, where you have guys that are loaning the company a million or a million and a half dollars at 10 or 12%, and they're paying out half of that million or a million and a half dollars on GNA, which is to say it isn't going into the ground, that's problematic too. So it really depends on who the person is, what the purpose of the loan is. There are circumstances where Ross Beatty looks and he said, you know, um, this money is cheaper than equity. Uh, the problem is transitory. It has to do with market conditions. Uh, and this money answers an unanswered question that will cause the share price to go higher. And I will be able to finance myself out with a de facto rights offering in a way that's non-dilutive for all shareholders, myself included. <clears throat> but that necessitates that you're involved with one of the good guys. It necessitates that you're involved with Ross Beatty who understands that his business reputation is an off-balance sheet asset, uh, you know, understands that if he treats shareholders well on this deal, that they'll be around in the next deal uh, and that his cost of capital will be lower. That's rare. You reference rights offerings. Do you like those? Especially I love rights offerings. Okay. Uh, the fairest of all financing mechanisms is a rights offering. Uh, most managements hate them. Uh, because most managements are raising money from other people to maintain their salaries. And a rights offering that a management team doesn't participate in <laughs> is a rights offering where the other investors say, if this is such a good deal, why isn't management participating? The outcome of a rights offering is in doubt too, without a lead order. Uh, and most managers are looking for certainty. So from most managers' viewpoint, uh, assuming uh, a 10 or 12 percent load on a financing to an investment bank where they don't have to do any work, where the investment bank in return for really unconscionable front-end fees uh, is willing to victimize <laughs> their client base is what most managers look for. The fairest form of financing of all is a rights offering. Uh, that's why for years I've said to management to managements that I'm involved in, if you will uh, commit to uh, doing a rights offering that is being fair to all your shareholders. If the terms and conditions are right, I'll backstop the rights offering. If you're going out to raise $5 million, uh, I will guarantee either the whole $5 million or any part of that $5 million that you think is appropriate. Most managers still don't want to do that, which is unfortunate. It's a very, very, very common form of financing. 
in Great Britain, South Africa, and Australia. And I think it's the most the most fair of all forms of equity offering. Rick, one thing on the rights offerings that I need a little clarity on is if all the existing shareholders don't exercise their their right to to buy a share and participate in the offering, those shares, potential shares go into somewhat of a lottery. Is that correct? And how does that lottery get divvied up amongst potential buyers? It, it really depends on the country. Uh, and it's usually disclosed in the offering memorandum. Um, the most common circumstance in Canada and Australia is that when uh, shareholders apply to participate in the rights offering, that they can be in what's called the overallotment pool. Uh, which is to say, let's say that they want uh, 5% of the primary issue. And let's say just for fun that the primary issue is $5 million. So they're subscribing for $250,000. Some investors, particularly institutional investors or very high net worth investors or family offices uh, may say, in addition to that, uh, I'm willing to participate for 5% in the overallotment pool, which is to say that everything that gets past the primary issuer goes back to the private placement, you know, goes back to the uh, the overallotment pool. Uh, we're getting into the weeds on this, but most Canadian companies are unwilling to uh, do the paperwork that would cause a rights offering to be available for U.S. persons. And the most common way to allow uh, Americans to participate in Canadian rights offerings is a sidecar private placement, uh, which is to say, in addition to a rights offering, that there's a private placement uh, that allows at least accredited American investors to participate para pursue. The other way is to distribute rights to shareholders. Uh, and the right can be uh, surrendered to the company with a check uh, to receive shares. And in the case of investors who are unwilling or unable to participate, their rights are sold on in a secondary market. So it's a sort of a nuanced activity. Uh, and maybe that's another reason why many managers don't want to do it. They're certainly more costly offerings and they're more complex offerings. Uh, it isn't like you call up Canaccord or Haywood and say, you know what, I want you guys to raise me $5 million in private placement, and here's what I'll pay you. Rick, the explanation you gave, that would be kind of like a, a pitch for why you need a full-service broker to navigate these markets, right? Uh, yes, you need a full-service broker, and yes, you need to do enough work yourself to determine whether or not the full-service broker is telling you the truth or knows what he's talking about. The uh, onus of investor protection is always the investor. Uh, and the most common reason for investor failure is a lack of participation in the process by the investor. Hmm. Great point. Brian? A uh, macro question for you. Uh, over the years, I've heard numerous negative statements uh, about gold from central bankers and various politicians. Uh, despite these negative views, many smart market commentators have stated they think the world will eventually incorporate gold back into the financial system. In your view, what's the probability that the world will embrace sound money once again and incorporate back into the financial, sy financial system? And the caveat being in our lifetime. <laughs> Brian, that depends on who you define as you. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm on a de facto gold standard now. Okay. One of the things I do as a sort of a thought exercise is calculate my income statement and my balance sheet 
in gram terms, uh, which is to say, rather than keeping my books only in a floating abstraction called the U.S. dollar, uh, I've also uh, taken to calculating uh, my finances in grams of gold, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I think the willingness of the political class to go on some sort of de facto gold standard is nil. Uh, the currency, what people in politics exist for is power, naked power. Uh, and a gold standard would restrict their ability to counterfeit. It would restrict their ability to spend without borrowing against collateral. And the probability that anybody would wreck their life as much as a politician has to wreck his or her life uh, for any purpose other than existing, uh, pardon me, obtaining power over other people, uh, seeing their own agenda advanced, uh, is nil. Uh, and the consequence of that is that the idea that any of them would subject themselves to the restraint that would be applied by a gold standard is nil. Now, you'll see false gold standards. You will see countries that will likely uh, base their currency on precious metals, tie them to precious metals over time. But tying it and backing it is a very different thing. Having your specie, having your currency redeemable for precious metals is something that I don't see any politician subjecting himself or herself to. Uh, and people say, unless they had a viable option, the only way that a politician would subject himself or herself or their country to a gold standard would be if they had no other alternative, which is to say they're broke. And if they're broke, how do they get the gold to back the currency? You follow what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. So, right. I, you know, I, I see a lot of talk about this. and I, I see a lot of commentators that said, you know, if you took the stock of currency in the United States and you converted it to gold, then gold would be $22,000 an ounce. Well, that's an arithmetic exercise. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine Biden or Trump uh, or Kamala Harris or pick your favorite thug? Uh, constraining their ability to do quantitative easing and deficit financing by tying themselves to gold? I don't. So you differ yeah. then with your friend, Jim Rickards. You don't see eye to eye on his view of how gold will play a role in the future monetary system? I don't. Uh, not at the official level. Uh, I see myself, I, I mean, as you guys know, I'm starting a bank or I'm backing Frank Trotter and the old Everbank guys at starting a bank. Uh, and we are going, going, among other things, to have gold-denominated certificates of deposit, and we're going to lend against gold. <laughs> In that sense, I'm adopting a gold standard, <laughs> my own gold standard. Uh, if somebody owns a million dollars worth of gold, and, and they want and to utilizing buy it, fractional banking, also, Rick, at the same time, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, assuming that uh, you know somebody owns a million dollars worth of gold, as an example, and they want to buy a summer cottage. Uh, will loan them half a million dollars against their gold. Uh, in effect, in a gold, in effect, a private gold standard. All right, I have, I have a question, binary question. If you had to choose between deep sea mining and asteroid mining, which one would you choose? <laughs> no, that's a binary <laughs> <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> so, you know, there there was a time in my youth when I was interested in unproven technologies. Um. 
and I realize that occasionally they work, but the net present value of my understanding of deep sea mining and asteroid mining is nil. So I don't have the ability to invest in things I don't understand. While I'm interested in them, uh, I'm not interested. Well, let me rephrase that. Even in retirement, I'm too busy to invest the time and treasure to come to, to come to understand those technologies well enough that I would be able to invest. And there's only so much of that that I want to do for my own personal amusement. There are other things that amuse me more. Yeah. And, and what jurisdiction would they be under? You know, Canadian laws, Australian laws. I've thought about that, too, because I get these emails about deep sea mining all the time. And I said, I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I tried to learn a little bit about it when uh, my friend Jim Askew, who's a very credible guy, uh, sort of went into that. And I began to question some of the better engineers that I knew uh, about how that might work. And I came away thinking, not with my money. Brian? Uh, hypothetical, hypothetical situation for you. Uh, so you're not Rick Rule. You're the average retail investor out there. And you have 10% cash left in your portfolio. In your view, where's the best risk to reward opportunity for that cash in the resource sector right now? I think it depends on who you are and what your portfolio looks like. You say not Rick Rule. That that narrows the field down to what, 8 billion people yeah, or something like that? Well, you know, I, I just want your network and yeah, net worth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just talking to the average guy out there who's going to probably average, have a little bit of everything in their portfolio. The average person out there has been trained by 40 years of benign markets to be too aggressive. Uh, the average guy out there needs to have 10% of her or his or her portfolio in cash, uh, which is to say the best thing to do if you have 10% cash in your portfolio is to leave it as liquidity. Uh, I, I, um, I've always been fairly liquid in my own portfolio. And while I understand perfectly that the interest rates, the deposit interest rates that we're enjoying right now, if that's the phrase, mean that you absolutely positively lose purchasing power every month by maintaining cash. What you have to think about is that the negative interest rate that you suffer is an option payment for having liquidity, which might give you courage to take advantage of circumstances like 2008 rather than being taken advantage of. Yeah. Uh, and so if the number is really 10%, my suggestion is that people leave it in cash. Getting back to the intent of the question, I think there's three answers. Most people have been too aggressive, uh, I think. And for most people, uh, their primary resource activity, the thing that they need to increase their exposure to, I'm not necessarily talking about your subscribers, but yeah. the average person out there, is that most people are underinvested in gold. Gold is financial insurance. It's catastrophe insurance. Gold is an asset that you own and you hope it doesn't go up in price because the circumstance that makes it go up in price beats the hell out of the rest of your portfolio. And by the way, scares you to death uh, about your life and your kid's life. If you've taken care of that as an investor and you're a younger person, I still believe that the best risk to reward juxtaposition in mining shares is in the uranium space. I don't see any way over the next five years that the uranium price in real dollars, in constant dollars, not nominal dollars, 
doesn't go from $47 to some number like 70 or 75, the incentive price for new production. So the idea that the commodity price has to go up, uh, you know, <laughs> by 30 or 35% has to uh, over five years. Uh, and that that the idea that that most likely will see its way through to the equity prices means that for speculators who have the two to five year time frame, that the easiest speculative opportunities uh, are still in the uranium space. If it's a different investor still, uh, if he's an old, bald, fat, rich, white guy like me, uh, where perhaps although he doesn't need income, he likes income, uh, then I would suspect that you either want to be involved in the very high quality uh, oil and gas names that have enough free cash flow that they can maintain their sustaining capital investments plus uh, return a yield to their owners or that they become involved in uh, in bad markets in the natural resource bond market, the short-term bond market, or in some of the various private credit programs around oil and gas, uh, pardon me, around uh, oil and gas and mining. Uh, most investors in our space are so focused on the upside that they don't understand that most of your job is reducing your downside. <laughs> and so depending on who the investor is, the answer could either be gold, uh, or if he or she is a wild speculator, uranium, uh, or if he or she either likes or needs uh, income and has an orienta orientation towards safety, uh, being on the debt side of the uh, capital stack is the best place to be. Remember that on any individual balance sheet, the worst piece of debt is better than the best piece of equity. Always remember that. Rick, in my first year of uh, speculating in junior resources, I memorized a bunch of Rick Rulisms. And one of them I remember about your downside was, I'll give you half of my upside if you take away all of my downside. So that was a memorable <laughs> one. Every every day of the week. <laughs> every day of the week. Yeah. yeah. Brian, I'll give you the final question. Sure. Um, so a few years back, uh, I believe it was at the Sprott Symposium. Uh, I was hanging around the outsides of one of the scrums around you. And uh, there was a bunch of people asking you questions. And if I'm not mistaken, um, I remember you answered a question about your favorite book, or maybe it was movie, being The Apprenticeship of Duddy uh, Kravitz. Yeah. And uh, so if that's correct, I, I just wondered uh, why you liked it so much. Well, I... I... If you've watched the movie, The Apprenticeship uh, of Judy Kravitz, uh, first of all, the experience of the young man going through the school of hard knocks uh, and how he came to understand who he could trust and who he couldn't trust uh, and how, uh, as a consequence of him choosing to trust the wrong people, uh, how he as a person changed from being somebody who was trustworthy to being untrustworthy, uh, I think was very, very, very useful. You choose your community. And one of the inevitable consequences of choosing a community is that the community ultimately uh, helps decide who you become. Uh, if you hang out with smart, honorable, nice people, your expectation becomes smart, honorable and nice, and you will be held to a community standard. 
Uh, if by contrast, uh, you hang out with a different community, you will become that community. And the beauty of the apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz is that the decisions that he made early in his career uh, shaped who he became. And I think that's an extremely valuable lesson. It's been said, uh, if you want to know who you'll become, look at the five closest people to you. So it's a similar idea, isn't it? And just like your portfolio, that can change. Hmm. Yeah, true. Very true. And Rick, you got a symposium you're putting on in not too distant future, right? In Florida? Yes. Hopefully you could link to it. Mm -hmm. uh, some of your listeners will know that we've put on the Natural Resources Investment Symposium. I believe this is our 30th year. For 27 years, it was a physical symposium in Vancouver, BC. Uh, for two years, as a consequence of COVID, it was a virtual uh, symposium. This year, it's going to be both. Uh, you can come see us in person, which is what I would suggest if you can, uh, or you can see it virtually. But the value proposition remains the same. Uh, first of all, the product has existed for 30 years, which means we've done a few things right. <laughs> we've stood the test of time. What we've done that was right is we've always assembled really good big picture macro thinkers. The Jim Rickarts, the David Stockmans, the Doug Casey's, the Daniela DiMartino Booths, the Nomi Prins, the Grant, Grant Williams, those types of people. People who have a grasp of the way the world really works, uh, as opposed to the way that you're necessarily told it works. A, a worldview that you won't see on CNBC uh, or read in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a strategic sense, but we also have good tactical uh, advice. We have the best sort of gurus and analysts that money can buy so that you have the opportunity to understand how to use the information that you receive from the big picture, big picture thinkers. What we have too that other conferences have lacked is two things. The first is that we've always had the living legends group, uh, individuals who are presenting to our audience who have themselves built multi-billion dollar natural resource companies from scratch. It's important that you hear how those companies were built and that you understand directly from them what was responsible for their successes, what was responsible for their failures, and how the process shaped them as investors uh, and how the lessons that they learned can affect your ability to invest and your ability to identify the serially successful entrepreneurs that you need to invest with. By the way, in a physical conference, following Ross Beatty or Robert Friedland through the exhibit hall and seeing what booths they stop in front of is worth way more than the cost of admission. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> All right. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, Rick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Brian, also, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks.
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.